0: Blog Talk Radio. You want to replay the point? Okay. Mr. Vavarinka wants to replay the point. 15
1: Good evening and welcome to Replay the Point. Today is Tuesday, May 16th, 2017. Pete Brown of Tennis Acumen joined by Jared Pine of a second serve. It's been a few weeks. Jared, welcome back.
0: Yeah, Pete. It's a busy time in the sports year, but good to be back talking about tennis and uh, looking forward to the the end of the clay season.
1: Absolutely and uh, here we are in 2017 and uh, a lot of people have commented uh, especially on Twitter it looks like it's 2005, 2006, but no, it's 2017. Federer wins the first three big events of the year. Rafael Nadal collecting everything on clay, and Nadal is on a roll. Jared uh, winning Monte Carlo, the Barcelona 500, Madrid 1,000. He's got a chance to do what he's never done before, which is pretty tough if you're Rafael Nadal, and that is to win three 1,000s and a 500 on clay heading into Roland Garros absolutely immaculate play from Nadal. He's dropped only one set that to Kyle Edmund of all people, your initial thoughts on Rafael Nadal and what is going on with the Spaniard.
0: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a combination of a lot of things. Um, Obviously he's playing great tennis. Um, That's, that's the first thing. That's very important. He's, he's rejuvenated and playing as well as he ever has on top of that, kind of the right guys are dipping at the right time. Um, But that, That really takes nothing away from Nadal, the fact that Djokovic and Murray are in a bit of a slump right now. Um, He's taking care of business against everyone. There's plenty of talented players on tour. We just saw Team reach a final. We've seen Ramos reach a final as well. And he handled those guys both easily. Uh, They went into those finals playing some very good tennis, and Mm -hmm. Nadal made it look like nothing. Um, So Nadal's really dominant right now. It kind of seems like whoever you throw at him, he's going to handle it. And we saw that last week when he beat Djokovic in straight sets.
1: Good call. Uh, you know, some of the Djokovic fans will be optimistic, obviously, with uh, what he was able to do at the back end of the second set. Still, uh, that was a straight set win for Nadal. But still, Jared, we need to really look at what Djokovic was able to do with Nadal for the last three years. Fifteen consecutive sets, seven consecutive victories. Amazing run for Novak Djokovic. But like you said, Rafael Nadal is just playing out of his mind right now. And, again, Concurrently, the dips from the other guys, uh, namely Novak Djokovic, Andy Murray, Stan Varenka even thrown in there. And uh, you add that all up, uh, especially with all the match play that Rafa had coming into the clay court season, and here's what we've got. He's always played well when he's got matches under his belt. Hard to imagine that, uh, you know, Monte Carlo this year was his first title since Barcelona of last year, but that that is true. That is accurate and uh, Rafa has parlayed that into Barcelona-Madrid. You mentioned Dominic Team in there. They've met in the last two finals, and uh, Team is someone who a lot of people are talking about who might be only one of the few challengers, if anybody, to, to, uh, to really look to uh, stand toe-to-toe in, uh, with Nadal at Roland Garros. My opinion, I think Dominic Team, when it's all said and done, will have two Roland Garros titles under his belt. Um, that would be remarkable for him. At the same point in time, Rafa came out, I saw on Twitter, saying uh, he is he's he can win Roland Garros, hopefully not this year, but he can win it. So uh, uh, nice to be echoed by Nadal, but I really like what I've seen from team this clay court season.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a, a few matchup problems with Nadal. We all know about what happens when someone with the one-handed backhand plays Nadal or when anyone plays against Nadal on clay. Uh, it's just going to always be a tough matchup. But, yeah, there's no doubt about what Dominic team can do on clay. And he really um, showed that this time last year when he reached the semifinals at roland Garros. So it was such a huge run. He really gave Djokovic a hard time. And this is at really the peak of Djokovic's dominance. And uh, he pushed the world number one. And I think that's where people really woke up to this idea that, wow, this guy's really good on clay. He's also not bad on hard courts. He's got a long way to go on the grass. But I like what you say about him potentially winning two Roland Garros titles, I think that's a pretty solid prediction um, because he has the stuff on clay. He has great firepower, good movement, and the slowness of the clay court allows him to run around his backhand, and he just has so much pop on his forehand. I think it's really um, a good game that mixes well with the clay surface.
1: Yeah, and what really sold me also on his all-around game, Jared, last year at Indy Wells I saw him play – Jack Sock on court number two. Team won the first set, and then uh, they split sets. Sock won the second set. Uh, nice comeback from the American there. Something that was extremely impressive. Team races out to a five-love lead. Jared uh, breaks Sock three times, uh, serving for the match at five-love is broken, and then breaks Jack Sock to win 6-1 in the fourth in the third set. Dominic team breaks Jack Sock four times on hard court at Indian Wells. The crowd's behind Sock. Sock had momentum after winning the second set. But that showed me a lot. He beat not only an upstart American, he beat the American crowd. And obviously, as you mentioned, his best surface is clay. I, I, but to me, seeing what team can do on all surfaces, uh, yeah, let's throw grass out of that mix. But, uh, yeah, I like what I see from him going forward. And, um, we're going to shift gears right now, sticking with the big four for quite a while. But before we do really quickly, I I'd like to share with you, Jared, uh, Christopher Johnson, photographer, uh, that I've met in uh, Cincinnati a couple of years ago, uh, grant editor of grand slam magazine. He was in Madrid last week in Rome now at the moment, uh, just skyped with him before this show, Heading over to Roland Garros, uh, some of uh, probably Holly and then Wimbledon, but he's been in the photo pit the last couple of weeks, and I had a chance to ask him about several of the players. And uh, one of the things I said is, you know, in Cincinnati, I've seen all of the big four when they were number one in press. They just conduct themselves and handle themselves differently when you're the world number one compared to even number two or anything less than that. And uh, I asked him, I said, Rafa is not number one, he's number four. But uh, does he have the look right now? Is he holding the mantle like he is world number one? Christopher Johnson said, absolutely. Uh, Got the killer instinct right there. His eyes are just showing everything. And that's what we see from Rafael Nadal going forward. Decimated field right now. But, yeah, But we're going to shift gears right now, Jared, to Roger Federer, who announced yesterday he will not play Roland Garros, so he didn't enter any of the tournaments on clay. He alluded to this fact after Miami that uh, playing Roland Garros is a, a good possibility that he won't do it, and uh, he's going to concentrate on grass and hard courts, and we've got the statement yesterday. Roger Federer out of Roland Garros, I'm not so surprised you were. Uh, please explain. Yeah, I mean,
0: for me, we're looking at a guy, Roger Fetter who went more than a decade without missing a single Grand Slam event. Uh, He did have his streak snapped, so I guess there's really nothing to push for. But that streak was snapped on injury. This is the first time since, I think you got to go back to like 2001, that he has voluntarily missed a Grand Slam. And even then it wasn't voluntarily. It was just because his ranking wasn't high enough. Um, You know, ever since this guy's had a high enough ranking, he's missed one grand slam, and that was the result of an injury. So for him to voluntarily miss one, I think that really shows a big shift in the focus for Roger Federer at this point in his career. He now has different goals. Um, You look right now, he's number two in the race rankings. Going into clay season, he was number one. If he had decided to play through the whole clay season, who knows where he would stand right now. He could have decided to make a push for number one. Clearly, he's decided that's no longer a priority for him. He has different priorities now. And uh, so that's what was surprising to me, um, because I really thought Feder did have a shot at number one after Miami. Obviously, when he decided to skip Monte Carlo, Madrid, and Rome, that that already showed that that was no longer priority for him.
1: Yeah, I, I looked at it from uh, the fact, uh, from a couple different facts here. He's 35. He's going to celebrate his 36th birthday at the Rogers Cup in Canada uh, August the 8th. And, Jared, he's got four children, uh, a lot more than a lot of guys on tour have. Um, And so he has shared uh, with the fact that, you know, he wants to see his children watch him play tennis. And the way I look at it, if he can shave off, chop off part of a year here to extend his career a couple more years, if he plays, you know, much like he did this year playing Australia, taking the clay court season off, getting ready for the grass court season, some of the North American hard court season, U S open, maybe not even the world tour finals either. My thought as a Roger Federer fan, as a tennis fan is I'd much rather see him in action four or five more years rather than uh, part-time rather than two full-time. Uh, I think anybody would take that except maybe the people in Paris, France that uh, don't get a chance to see him play. But he knows what's best for his body. I've had a couple of the other people reach out to me electronically saying, you know, that the clay would have really torn up his body. He knows exactly what he's doing. And I've kind of felt that way all along. And, uh, you know, as a tennis fan, I, 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 I love the approach. I really do. And, you know, kind of shifting gears, if you will, we've seen Serena and Venus really kind of cheery-pick tournaments for the last five, six years, and nobody's really had an issue with that. A lot of people expressing outrage at Federer doing this, saying he's ducking Nadal. I, I think differently. This is a guy now in his going into his late 30s. He knows what's best for his body, and I'm I'm totally cool with what Roger Federer has decided to do.
0: Yeah, I mean, if anyone's ducking anyone throughout the courses of their careers between Nadal and for Federer, it's definitely Nadal because Federer makes finals consistently on every single surface. Nadal makes finals consistently on clay where he has a huge advantage over Federer and only really makes it to the finals on hard court events when he's on fire and hasn't reached a a grass court final. And it's been a while. I want to say 2010 was the last time, or sorry, 2011, he was in the Wimbledon final. So, I mean, really this is a case of Nadal only plays Federer when he has the upper hand. So there's really no argument to say that uh, Federer's ducking Nadal. Um, I like the analogy you drew with Sharapova and Williams. Let me give you another one. Victor Tritsky, a couple years ago, was suspended from tennis, had to miss a year. And I really think that Tritsky was better for it. He came back playing some of the best tennis of his career. He was rejuvenated. And so he might have missed a year of tennis but I think what ended up happening was he was able to add on two years to the back end of his career. So Federer's pulling out for three, four months, but how much time is that now going to add to the back end of his career? So I I do see the logic of it. It makes sense to me. Um, I think this could really extend Federer's career, which in the long run is better for tennis. you mentioned, it kind of uh, doesn't work out so well for the fans in Paris, uh, but for the rest of the tennis fans, uh, I think it's great for the sport overall.
1: I completely agree, and uh, looking forward to seeing Roger uh, hopefully compete as early as Halle in uh, Germany and obviously Wimbledon. And So, uh, Jared, we're going to shift gears to Novak Djokovic, uh, someone who, uh, you know, he reached the the semifinals in in Madrid and lost to uh, Nadal in straight sets. The first time Nadal has beaten him in three years almost. Uh, Last time was Roland Garros of 14. Djokovic had 15 consecutive sets against Nadal. Uh, got that uh, erased in the first set, but then Novak started competing better. Um, Want to get your thoughts on uh, that matchup. Uh, Obviously, Novak uh, finally losing to Rafael Nadal, uh, first time in eight matches, and uh, want to share some observations from uh, Chris Johnson as well. But first off, Novak Djokovic reaching the semifinals in Madrid, Your, your takeaways from that.
0: Yeah, this is really the first positive result we've seen from Djokovic since early in the year when he was playing in Do- Doha. Um, since then, it's been a pretty crummy year for Djokovic. He's still outside the top 10 in the race rankings. He's been as low as outside the top 20, and it's looking pretty likely, that probably after Roland Garros, he's going to drop outside the top two. It'll be the first time that Djokovic is outside of the top two since 2011 when he was on his 42-match wow. winning streak. Um, so we're talking about a six-year streak of Djokovic being in the top two. Uh, That's got to be one of the five longest streaks in tennis history. Um, So that's about to come to an end. So things really aren't looking good for Djokovic, but for him to reach a semifinal to get to play against Nadal, I think these are some positive signs. And hopefully that loss to Nadal is going to light a little bit of a fire under his belly and get him um, going again. He obviously just made the coaching change as well. So Mm -hmm. changes are all over the place for Djokovic. He's about to go back to Roland Garros where obviously he has the great memories from last year. He's going to go with a different attitude this year. He doesn't have all the pressure of completing the non-calendar slam, of um, completing the career grand slam as well as was another thing he did there. Um, So he's coming in with a totally different mentality this year. And so these are a lot of changes for Djokovic. With the way he's playing, change can only be a good thing at this point.
1: Well, I like what you said, and, you know, since this is the first time in a few weeks we've done a show, Jared, we haven't had the opportunity to talk about Djokovic uh, getting rid of his current staff. Uh, You know, Vida has been there forever and has done really nice work with with Djokovic. But uh, fresh start, no coach right now. Uh, The Agassi rumor or, uh, you know, even in press was was mentioned. Uh, Novak himself said shock therapy. It's going to be somebody who's been through – a lot that I've been through. Well, there's a parallel right there. Both Agassi and Djokovic have had their biggest success at the Australian Open. That could be um, – I I don't know. I'm, I'm fine with Djokovic being on his own for a while. Uh, that said, we are going to have two slams in a very short period of time. Maybe not the best time, ideal time, but Novak Djokovic made a move and uh, – I'm okay with him being coachless for the moment, but uh, would would excuse me? Would Andre Agassi be the best choice, or uh, is someone else? Uh, do you have a Do you have a short list of guys that you would like to see, or might think would be most beneficial for him at this time?
0: Well, I always think Pete Sampras would be the best one for Djokovic. Um, I don't even know if Pete Sampras is interested in coaching, um, but obviously there is a great deal of respect between the two. Djokovic has always looked up. Sampras. Sampras has spoken very highly of Djokovic throughout his career, and the two are good friends. Um, it, I, I don't know if Sampras is interested in coaching, though. Obviously, their their games are very different. I'm not sure from a technical spo- standpoint that Sampras would have anything to add to Djokovic's game, but really, I think there there's that motivation factor, something like what Stefan Edberg added to the Federer camp. I think mm-hmm. Sampras could do something similar for Djokovic, um, I would really like that matchup. Obviously, at, at this point in tennis, everyone's picking uh, these former number ones as tennis coaches. So, uh, I think Pete Sampras would be a good one. Obviously, um, for me, it's a big bummer to see Mary and Vida go. I think he was such a huge part of Djokovic's success throughout his career. Obviously, this is this is mutual. They they leave on good terms. They're still going to be great friends for life. Um, but not having Vida in the box there for Djokovic anymore it's just going to be a different feeling and um, yeah I think Vida is going to be missed in a lot of ways because he really was uh, such a big piece of Djokovic's career Um, Djokovic did things that other players that no other player has done he won four slams in a row on three different surfaces no one in tennis history has done that Vida was a part of it and um, yeah Vida's not on the team anymore so it's, it's really a big change
1: Yeah, good call. I'm going to refer back to uh, my conversation with Christopher Johnson of Grand Slam Magazine. Jared, who, uh, as I mentioned, was in the photo pit last week in Madrid and is there this week in Rome. And uh, I asked specifically for observations of Djokovic, and I said, you know, if you could summarize Novak right now, what would it be from what we saw the last five years and now? His answer was war and peace. Uh, Novak was such a warrior you know, as recently as last year at this point in time, and uh, it's a different deal right now. It's, it's, he's just kind of going along with the flow. Of the body language is that not is just calm and passive. The killer instinct is not there. For me specifically, Jared. Uh, yeah, okay. He won Roland Garros, completed the career Grand Slam, four hold all four trophies, had the inexplicable loss to query at Wimbledon. Obviously, a tough draw getting Delpo out of the gate at Wimbledon. Waltz, through Canada, did not play well at all, and I don't think he even dropped a set the winning his 30th Masters 1000. But for me, where I really circled it, if you will, was the ATP World Tour Finals against Murray, where he just wasn't there. He 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 was, in my opinion, checked out. Two, uh, two-thirds or three-quarters Novak Djokovic, in my opinion, no disrespect, to Andy Murray would have won that match. Would have been, you know, would have won the ATP World Tour Finals yet again. It didn't happen, and it didn't seem to really affect or bother Novak Djokovic. And at that point, that's where I personally pressed the panic button. Maybe others did earlier, as early as Query, or uh, you know, earlier in the year. And certainly, yeah, he won Doha and looked like he maybe have corrected course. But obviously, it really hasn't happened. Uh, lost to Esteban or whatnot. But to me, that World Tour Finals against Murray, where he just it it just wasn't Novak Djokovic to me. Again, the world the war and peace analogy really rings true. Just want to get your thoughts on what uh, Christopher Johnson, who was in the photo pit last week and this week, has had to say and his observation on Djokovic.
0: Yeah, no, it's a it's a really good way to put it. Um, I like that. Obviously, Djokovic has been going on his love and peace tour as well, so. So it's a little bit of a play on that. Um, But, yeah, Djokovic just hasn't had it lately. I think for me when it really clicked was that loss to Istomin, where I thought, okay, wow, um, this is really now a huge step back. I thought it was a little bit of a slump. um, But after that loss to Istaman, there was a whole realigning of expectations for Djokovic where you no longer think of him as a contender at every single tournament that he enters. Um, He hasn't won a tournament since Doha. So this has really been a different Djokovic. Expectations for him right now are way down, um, which might be a good chance for him to shine. Uh, but really, this is the first time in a long time that we haven't been expecting Djokovic to win every single tournament he goes into. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a chance for him to kind of reinvent himself and do something new. Uh, but for now, th- this is much more than a slump at this point.
1: I completely agree, and we're going to shift gears to uh, someone who's having a, a similar slump, Jared. Uh, Andy Murray, current world number one by a mile, and yet uh, lost today to Fabio Fognini. I'm not all that surprised, uh, given Murray's uh, show in form for this year, 2017, and uh, really surprised at, at, at Murray. This is somebody who uh, – you know, was in the Roland Garros final last year, Uh, took out Nadal in a clay court tournament last year, really played exceptionally well. I've always thought he was a very good clay court player, just has not had a very good 2017 at all. And, um, you know, I was asking again, Chris Johnson, who was there in the photo pit. I said, what, uh, what do you make of Murray? And he said, you know, he's sort of, he missed a lot today. He's hitting very short. He's hitting very passively. He said he's got the smile on his face that, uh, dare I say, it kind of looks like he's stoned a little bit. I've seen that look from Murray before where he's sort of, it's it's very disbelief, if you will, where he's down on himself. And it's, uh, it's a grin, if you will. But at the same point in time, you can tell he's imploding. He's absolutely disgusted. Andy Murray out to Fabio Fognini, not a bad loss given who Fognini is, who's really given Rafa challenges in the last couple of years on clay. But, You know, this is the world number one we're talking about and uh, who's had some questionable losses, although not today. Good Lord, I mean, Murray made it all the way to the final last year to set off Djokovic in that Roland Garros final very, very far away from where he was last year at this time.
0: Yeah, Finini uh, absolutely on fire, and we can talk about him more in a bit. Obviously, a lot going on with Finini, plenty to talk about there. Uh, From Murray, I'll start with the positive. I don't think I I really gave him enough credit for how good of a 2016 he had just because of the fact that he didn't get to number one until the last week of the season. Um, But now after seeing the way he struggled throughout 2017 and he's still number one by a large margin, um, I think with that hindsight and kind of a little more perspective now, you look back on what Murray did in 2016, it, it was really impressive. I think that was great stuff for him um the negative thing is this is the third time that murray's gone into a slump like this the first one when he won his first major he wins the u.s open goes into a big slump after that he achieved a big goal of his and follows it up immediately with a the slump then he wins wimbledon another big goal of his falls out up with a slump and now he wins he reaches number one in the world and he's followed that up with a big slump so he's he's gonna snap out of it eventually it's going to happen uh, he still has plenty of goals left in his tennis career, plenty of things to motivate him. But we've seen this before. When he achieves a big goal, there's a dip in motivation, which immediately immediately leads to a dip in play. So he's going to bounce back, um, but it is kind of surprising to see that, he's, that he hasn't really learned from this the first two times and that he's still having to go through this slump after achieving such a great thing as uh, reaching number one in the world. And I think when Nadal takes, the number one ranking from Murray, which is really inevitable at this point. It's going to happen. Once that happens, I think uh, Murray's probably going to snap out of it and be right back to where he was as one of the, one of the most competitive players on the ATP.
1: I agree. Uh, he's he's always been charging. He's always been the upstart. He's been been there for so long, been been holding at number two, and obviously things fell right with Djokovic uh, checking out, if you will. Murray was there. He, he literally won... Almost everything last year. Credit to him, and as you mentioned, looking at the rankings, I mean, you you go back and you look and you say, "Wow, he w- look at this lead that uh, that he has over Novak Djokovic. It's a mile long, and uh, yet you know he's not necessarily playing well, but the, the lead is still there and will be for a while, as you mentioned, Jared, until probably Nadal of all people will will take it from him. But uh, maybe that will be what happens to flip the switch. But uh, all these guys are certainly capable of flipping that switch, getting it done. Uh, someone else who is, Jared, uh, the champion of Roland Garros a couple of years ago, Stan Wawrinka, who surprisingly, or maybe not so much, is not having that great of a clay court season. This is a guy who's got three majors, Jared, just won Masters 1,000. He's, he's won a Masters 1,000 the year he won the Australian Open. Took Federer out on clay in Monte Carlo. This is a tournament Federer has not yet won. But yet, I you know, Stan can, can lose early, and we're not surprised. Stan sometimes survives early in a tournament and turns on the Jets in the second week of a major. Nobody wants to play him. He's going to get the job done. Your attempted explanation of Stan Varenka.
0: Yeah, I mean, we talk about Stan every week. I'm kind of running out of things to say <laughs> about him. It, the guy is unpredictable. This is what we say every week. We have no clue what he's going to do. There's no point in trying to predict him. Um, you know, he he does this kind of stuff where he'll lose in the first round to a player and then the next week he goes and wins a Grand Slam. So, yeah, Stan Wawrinka's had some great wins in his career. He's balanced that, I guess you could say, with some bad losses. I guess it's better to have lots of big highs and, and lots of big lows than to just be mediocre for your entire career. Um, but, yeah, Stan's completely unpredictable, and uh, <laughs> there's so many ways to say it, I guess.
1: Yeah, and you know, I'll go back to something Federer said at Cincinnati and now he's now won Cincinnati seven times. But Jared, I think he's had three first round losses. I he lost to Mur- he lost to um uh, Karlovich, obviously, which was as he as he said, a serving contest. He lost very early to Murray uh years ago after he won Canada and got through Sri Chapan. that took a lot out of him and Murray just uh was on the upstart and got him and Fed said, yeah, you know, I, I either win this or I lose early. It's better than being in the quarters every year. And that's absolutely right. Stan will take that night and day. Stan Varenka, three majors, uh, better than a lot of guys like Burditch who go deep in the second uh, week of seemingly every major but don't have anything to show for it. Let me, uh, Since since we went there, Jared, and said Stan Varenka is, is utterly unpredictable, I'm going to throw this out there just as a wild card. Stan hasn't had a good clay court season. Let's say Stan loses first or second round Roland Garros. Could this be a bird dog where he can then go to Germany or England and get extra grass court season play in a la Roger Federer? And the reason I bring this up, Jared, Stan Varenka only needs Wimbledon for the career Grand Slam.
0: Isn't that crazy? Um, you know, five <laughs> years ago, the guy didn't have a single Grand Slam he had just finished the year as the only player inside the top 20 without a single title. And mm. and the thought was, Dan Vavrinka doesn't know how to play the big matches. He doesn't have a single title, but he's in the top 20. What is this? And now here he is, one Wimbledon away from the career grand slam, and it's conceivable. He could win Wimbledon. Like I said, he's completely unpredictable. Um, he's had success before on grass, so we know he's capable of it. Uh, it's just a question of is he going to put it all together? And if he gets into the quarterfinals, semifinals, we said it before, he gets harder and harder to beat. He could certainly win the career Grand Slam and do it before Andy Murray. Um, you know, that would just be um, kind of shocking, I guess, would be the word for it. Um, but, yeah, Varinka could certainly do it.
1: It would be shocking, but it would be so Stan. So, although we would be shocked at one end of the spectrum, uh, we, I don't think we'd all be surprised either. I mean, if anybody can do this or pull this off, it would be Stan. So, why the hell not, as John McEnroe would say. So, absolutely. Um, um, Want to shift gears. We talked about him a little bit, Jared. Dominic team, uh is in the Barcelona final, in the Madrid final, loses to Rafa. Uh, Rafa himself said that team has a good chance of, of winning Roland Garros. I know we talked about this a little at the top, but uh, we're getting close to Roland Garros' time. And uh, any, What percentage uh, would you give team of winning Roland Garros this year?
0: Yeah, well, a lot of it depends on how the draw works out. The last few tournaments what we've seen is a really weak top half of the draw and a really strong bottom half of the draw. And so if he lands in the opposite side of the draw as Djokovic, and Nadal, um, we're talking, you know, 25-30% chance. Uh, otherwise, um, probably less than 10%. I mean, at this point in his career, that's such a huge ask. He's never even been into a Grand Slam final. Just reached his first Masters final, um, so a lot would have to go right. Um, that we we saw this from Roubisch last year. He's obviously a very good player, but he reaches his first Grand Slam final, and he's kind of overwhelmed by the situation. I imagine yep. it'd be something similar for team if he does get that far into the tournament. Um, but with that being said, if he has a nice draw, we've seen, he can beat just about anyone except Nadal. the doll. So, you know, then if he's on the opposite side of the draw, all he needs is a little bit of help. Someone takes care of Nadal for him. Okay. That's a lot yep. of help, not a little bit of help, but you know, it, it is certainly possible that he could win the title if he has a nice draw. Um, you know, just the way the draws have been working out lately, it's like some guys have the death draw and other guys have a cakewalk. Uh, we're seeing some real extremes both in Madrid and Rome. Um, be out. Who, who knows what will happen with Roland Garros? That's why it's a draw. It's random, and uh, it's one of the things we love about tennis.
1: Yep, and um, absolutely. And let's not forget R- Rafael Nadal raced through the first two rounds of Roland Garros last year before not being able to take the court against Marcel Granollers. And uh, comparable Kei Nishikori, Jared, yet again. I mean, this is a broken record. We talk about Stan and how it all works for him or doesn't work, and here we have Kei Nishikori not being able to take the court. But I want to ask you right now for your short list, if you will, of guys to challenge Rafael Nadal at Roland Garros. Uh, Nadal, obviously the overwhelming favorite by by all good means right now. Fed is out of the draw. Uh, Other possibilities for me would be, obviously, Djokovic, defending champion. Stan Varenka, uh, we talked about Dominic team. David Goffin, uh, Nick Kyrgios is on the shelf and, and nicked up literally. Zverev, um, long shot at best. Chilich, long shot. Songa, wild card. Del Patro, possibly. Uh, Fabio Fognini, who has uh, had Nadal's number on clay. You know, two years ago, beat him twice in South America and and beat him at Barcelona, where obviously Nadal won his 10th career title. So Fognini could could get it done. Nice win for him over Murray. But it's a short list. I I gave maybe a little bit longer names than uh, than a short list. But, uh, you know, I'd give each of those guys maybe about one, one and a half percent uh, versus Nadal at this point.
0: Yeah, so we started off talking about Nishikori, so let's let's bring him up in terms of his chances against Nadal. Um, Mm. I'd actually like Nishikori to beat Nadal if somehow they could meet in the first round. Obviously, that's not possible because they're both going to be seeded. I think the soonest they could possibly meet each other would be the quarterfinals. And Nishikori's body holding up that long, I don't think you or I can really imagine that happening. Yeah. Um, But you go back a few years, they were playing each other in the Madrid final. Nishikori Corey was in complete control of that match before his body let him down. Um, so we know he's good enough. And also, if you want to get Nadal, you got to get him early in the tournament. Yep. Um, I think we, you know we both remember when John Isner almost took him out in the first round. Yeah, uh, Isner would have had no shot of doing that in the in the quarterfinals. Um, so if you want to get Nadal, you got to get him early. Initially, is just not going to have that opportunity. So um, I think that would be a long shot for him as well.
1: Yeah, I like that. Um, I, yeah, it all depends where they match up, and obviously that Nishikori Nadal wouldn't happen any earlier than the quarter's. Good call there. Uh, Jared, we're going to shift gears right now to the current Masters 1000 in Rome. Uh, we talked a little bit about Fabio Fognini taking out Murray. I'm not really all that surprised uh, for, for both reasons. Fognini can play, and Murray is just in a different place right now. Um want to go back to something you talked about a little bit earlier because I don't think people realize the fact that Nadal, if he runs the table uh, for a little while longer, could be number one very quickly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I think uh, probably as soon as we could see it, actually mathematically as soon as we could see it, would be Wimbledon. But I actually think that's a good chance of that happening because that's where Murray's going to lose 2,000 points, Nadal, nothing to defend. Nadal has nothing to defend. The Roland Garros really has nothing to defend for the rest of the year. So it's going to happen at some point. Um, Wimbledon would probably be the, the soonest realistically. Of course, Nadal's really struggled on the grass over the last uh, several years, ever since he reached that final in 2011. Um, so I think you'd have to have a good performance there to have a shot at getting to the number one there. Um But, yeah, he has tons of opportunities after that, whether it be in Canada, Cincinnati, or even at the U.S. Open. Eventually, I think it's going to happen that Nadal gets to that number one ranking. He's currently number one in the race rankings. The only player that's close to him is Roger Federer, who, as we mentioned, is not even going for number one. Then after that, you have Dominic Thiem, who just has a matchup problem with Nadal. And so if Thiem has to get through Nadal to get to number one, that's probably not going to happen. Um... So Murray defending it right now, I think he's down to 10th in the race rankings. Um, Mm. Something would really have to turn around for him to have a shot at defending his number one ranking this year. Uh, So sooner or later, I think Nadal's going to be right back atop the rankings.
1: Amazing, and it just brings me back to uh, uh, what I and uh, probably a dozen or 15 other people uh, participated in your, your poll at the beginning of the year. I, I would have to think this is completely upside down, Jared. We might have to revisit that because uh, a lot of stuff happening in the ATP Tour and not happening for that matter. But um, shifting gears back to Rome, John Isner, an American, shows up at a Masters 1000 in Europe, and look at that. Good things are happening. Isner, obviously, I believe he and Quarry won the Rome title doubles, in doubles a few years ago, and... Uh, John Isner, you referenced that match against Nadal, taking him five in round number one at Roland Garros. He can play on the clay, and he's showing it this week.
0: Yeah, and these are two really good wins. To beat Ramos, who just reached the final at Monte Carlo, came into the tournament seeded, that's a good win. And then he beat Florian Meyer, which people might be thinking, okay, that's not that great of a win. But for Isner, it is. I remember uh, 2012, I want to say it was Isner beats Djokovic in the semifinals of Indian Wells, loses a big final to Federer there, Indian Wells. Then they go over to Miami where Isner's is just on fire at this point and he loses to Florian Meyer. Uh, it was just a huge matchup problem. The style of play of Florian Meyer is so unique and Isner couldn't find a way around it, couldn't beat him on home soil. Now here's John Isner beating Florian Meyer on a clay court in Europe. So I think that really shows just how well John Isner's is playing right now. I think it's a really good sign for him, and he's always dangerous at Roland Garros. I've already mentioned the time he nearly took out Rafael Nadal. Um, We've seen him beat Federer in best of five on clay. Um, No one wants to see John Isner next to their name when the draw comes out at Roland Garros.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned Florian Meyer. This is a guy I will drop everything and go watch, as I've done in Cincinnati, going to watch him on tiny court number 10 along with 30 other people when other bonafide matches were taking place on the grounds. I just love his unorthodox style of play. Very, very refreshing sort of a a Soderling type of uh, long wing forehand, but uh it ends there. Everything else about Florian Meyer is totally unpredictable. So, for someone like Isner to take him out, uh, for anybody to take him out, big accomplishment. Florian Meyer a lot of fun to watch, but uh, as you mentioned, a lot of people might not uh, take a lot of stock into those two wins, but Ramos, as you mentioned, Jared, great start to 2017 and Meyer. Uh, might be a, a very, very under-the-radar win for John Isner, but uh, you and I and John Isner both know what it took for him to beat Florian Meyer today, so absolutely. And uh, also concurrently going on in Rome, Novak Djokovic, David Goffin, Marin Cilic, Tomas Burdich all into the third round.
0: Yeah, absolutely. A lot of guys playing well. If I can, just for a second, go back and add on to what you were saying about Florian Meyer, him being one of those guys where you drop everything to go watch him play. I'd put him among three players who are like that. The other ones being Fabrice Santoro. I think everyone knows why with him. Uh, You could spend hours on YouTube watching highlights of Fabrice Santoro. And the other one being Brian Battistone, the guy who plays – with the double-handled hand handled racket. I've actually had a chance to see him play in person at a Futures. Um, that's another one where if you have the opportunity, if nothing else, look, at, look him up on YouTube. But if you can see him on person in person, it is just crazy what happens on a tennis court when that guy uh, starts playing. Um, so I, I'd put those three guys as uh, drop everything and watch them if you get the chance. Um, so, yeah, getting back to your question, you got four of those seeded guys moving forward in, into the tournament. I think this is really nice from Aaron Cilic. We've talked about him a, quite a bit on the show where uh, he does get better as the year goes on. So this is part of that progression that we're expecting from him, and uh, it really bodes well going into Wimbledon, which is where I think he could potentially do a lot of damage. I think the game, his game mixes well with the grass. He slices well, obviously has a big serve. His problem has been that he gets stuck in these long five-set matches and usually can't keep going after that. He might win the five-set match, but then lose in the next round. Um, I think if he's playing well at Wimbledon and avoids those five-set matches early on, he could potentially make a run there. Uh, I'd be really excited to see what Chilich could potentially do at Wimbledon. So this is a, a build-up for him, some a good sign.
1: I, I, I like that, and uh, my my parallel there is Rafa's had a strong. Incredible 2017. Uh, Not a title until Monte Carlo, but uh, obviously went deep nearly everywhere. That's what Rafa needed. Uh, Chilich, as we've talked about endlessly on the show, Jared, uh, not until Wimbledon and beyond does he wake up. He's he's had some nice results in 2017 on clay. Interesting. Uh, Always a wild card. Uh, We'll see how far he might be able to take this in 2017. We know what he's capable of. Talking with Christopher Johnson, uh, again, of Grand Slam Magazine on Skype beforehand. We were both in Cincinnati last year where Chilich, as he admitted himself, was playing better in Cincinnati last year than he did en route to the U.S. Open title a few years earlier. That's how well he was playing. He's got it in him. It's nice to see him playing this well in the spring. I would think uh, even if he doesn't uh, fare as well as he expects, In the springtime on the clay, this has to bode well for him going forward. Nice to see Marin Cilic heading into the second half of the year with a boatload of confidence instead of just finding his game at that point in time. And, Jared, before we wrap up, uh, David Ferrer, milestone victory, number 700. Seems like this guy's been around forever. A joy to watch him play as well, obviously in the twilight of his career, but uh, nice to see him with a monumental win today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. This is a, this is a great uh, honor for him, and he tweeted out he's won 700 games, which or 700 matches, which means he's had 700 happy days. Uh, this guy's a great competitor. He loves winning, and I, I think that's a great way for him to put it. He's happy when he wins. Uh, this guy is very competitive. He's been doing it for a long time, and I think everyone on tour, everyone who has a ten is a tennis fan, has nothing but a ton of respect for David Ferrer. So. Um, really well well well-deserved honor getting the 700 career wins
1: can't can't say anything more that that is a magical number absolutely congrats David Ferrer always a pleasure to watch you play tennis and um, Jared before we wrap up number one great to get back in touch with you I know it's been a couple of weeks we've both had busy schedules but uh, here we are knocking on the door of the second grand slam of the year and uh Remains to be seen. I think a lot of people are are just wanting to hand the trophy to Rafa, but we had a a short list of guys who can uh, cause a disturbance here or there. And as you mentioned, if someone somehow is able to take Rafa out, uh, it may be a derby going forward. Uh, we didn't. Nobody expected him to withdraw after two wins last year, so uh, the injury bug could be part of the equation as well. Hopefully, not for any of these guys but uh, it always remains to be uh, a possibility with even guys like Kyrgios and Karlovich exiting Rome this week. So before we sign off, Jared, anything else to add this week on Replay the Point?
0: Yeah, two things just really quick. One, um, Fabio Fanini on the 19th is set to become a father, and we have seen in tennis what happens when already good players become fathers. Uh, We've mentioned uh, Fanini when he's on, he plays really well. If him being a father has a similar effect to, on him that it has to Feder to Djokovic, um, I think that would be a scary thing for him going into Roland Garros. I don't think anyone's going to want to play against Benigni. And the other one, uh, a really nice win for Juan Martin Del Potro takes out Grigor Dimitrov, who did have some serving issues today. So I think Del Potro is a little bit helped by that. But Del Potro dropped the first set and then won the next two pretty easily. So a nice comeback win for Del Potro. Uh, he could be a bit of a dark horse at Roland Garros. So I'm curious to see how far he can go in Rome and, and just what exactly his form is looking like going into the second major of the year.
1: Great points, and uh, that sparks one last question, Jared, and, and I think we touched on this briefly on the on the previous show. Grigor Dimitrov off to an absolute on-fire start in 2017 not so much lately um any idea of uh, what may have detracted him this year
0: yeah I'm, I'm going to talk it up to the clay i think we switched over to the clay and the momentum just died with that switch and mm. um you know it could come right back on grass we've seen him do some incredible things on yep. grass at queens at wimbledon uh, he's a great grass court player and so I don't think this is a slump that's going to last very long. It's a few disappointing results, uh, but I think it's going to turn around really soon for him. Uh, maybe not as soon as, as Roland Garros, he has struggled there traditionally, uh, but once that grass season gets going again, I think he's going to be right back at it and looking to qualify for the World Tour Finals.
1: Yeah, great, great point. And I'd uh, like to and say a, a big, very big thank you to Christopher Johnson of Grand, of Grand Slam Magazine, who's been in the photo pit Last week in Madrid, this week in Rome. Looking forward to his coverage from Roland Garros, Halle, Wimbledon. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for all your insights on the Big Four and more. And so, on behalf of Christopher Johnson, Jared Pine, this is Pete Zebron saying good night. We'll catch you next time on Replay the Point. Good night. <laughs>